Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And in just a minute, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. As you know, we've been working through Romans verse by verse. So the reason why we're here today is this is where we should be. Uh, we've been, this is the 51st sermon, by the way, uh, in Romans. We took a few breaks here and there, um, but this is number 51. So, <laughs> I don't know if that it matters, but it matters to me. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? N- not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And the it there is referring to verses 10, 11, and following. Verse 17, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the Potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he in advance, prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Amen. Let's let's pray together. Father, we ask that your glory and your goodness pass before us so that you would be bigger and unimpeded in our understanding of you. And for that to happen, you must speak by your voice, from your word, which alone awakens the dead and causes people to listen. So, Father, to that end, enlighten our minds that we may understand what is written. For you have the words of life. Amen. Well, I don't think you have lived until you have listened to Prime Prime Minister's questions which you can find on C-SPAN 2 and the BBC 2 on Sunday night. (laughs) It originates every Wednesday. I've been watching this probably for like 20 years now, not systematically, but a lot. And Wednesday at noon, the British House of Commons is sitting, and during that time, the Prime Minister takes questions from the members of Parliament. And I like it because it's filled with pageantry. It's filled with good English. And I also like it because I personally learn how that nation approaches similar issues which our nation faces. And listening to it, I think, helps me 
become a better citizen here. So what happens is questions come and then the prime minister answers them. And that's going to take us to our very first point right off the bat, a great big introduction. Because if you listen to the text read, you probably notice that Paul has done a lot of question and answer type things in this letter. Not just in Romans 9, but all over the letter. And there are questions either put forward to the apostle or he himself puts forward in light of the gospel he's proclaiming here in Romans. And so some of the questions Paul anticipates, others no doubt questions that come after he preaches the gospel. And so people have either interest or they have objections in the form of questions. Or in the case here, questions which flow out of what he declares, among other things, that no one knows naturally. Now, that is fundamental. There are things about God that no one knows naturally that we need to be told. The technical name for that is specific revelation, which means there are specific things about God we do not know naturally. We, we can't get there on our own, but we need to know. And therefore, we need God to tell us what we need to know and Because we can't know it naturally, and through his apostles and through the Old Testament, which Paul will quote from here, as in the case here, he'll tell us. So we'll find out. And of course, we have what we should know, what he says in our Bibles. And because of that, as you would expect, questions come because this is new. And they give us a sense of what kind of situations Paul faced And what kind of emphasis Paul had and what kind of questions actually stir his passion. In fact, those questions would stir his passion prompt the same response from Paul in Romans 10 other times. You can see it in verse 14. There it is. Paul asked that question and then his response, by no means. May go notzo in the Greek. May it never be. So a question comes after he preaches his gospel. His passion is stirred. Opening part of the answer is given by no means. So look at your Bibles, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Hey, Paul, since the gospel is grace, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's the question that comes out of Paul's gospel. By no means. Chapter 6, verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Right? Can we sin away because we're under grace? Paul's answer, by no means. Chapter 7, verse 7, since the law only arouses our passion for sin and it doesn't crush it, right? So since moral sermons only arouse passion, it doesn't crush it, is the law sinful? Is morality sinful? By no means. And again, those questions come when Paul explains or proclaims the gospel. And so if your Bible's open, have a look down in your Bibles, it's the same here. Question 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Answer, meganotzo, by no means. All right, so specific revelation about God is given in verses 11 and following. And what flows out of that is his question in verse 14. So let's just walk through that. Verse 11, yet before the twins, Jacob and Esau were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, we talked about that last time. Nevertheless, here comes the question. You hear that, and the question is, is God unjust? 
Is there injustice in God? Because election does not seem just. It doesn't seem fair. So is this right? So is God being righteous in election as it is described here? And what does he say? Look at your Bibles. By no means. And then he goes on to explain why God's not being unjust in the doctrine of election. Now, you should know that this isn't the only place where this question of, is God being righteous, has been asked. All right? So that's kind of important because we tend to think that's the only big question that people have is in election. If you go back to chapter 3 and 4 in Romans, you'll learn that question there was, okay, how can God be righteous in justifying the unrighteous? Now, we're Christians. We're so used to hearing that. We don't think through that. Pagan hears that. And you're like, what? God justifies the unrighteous? Now, think that through. The guilty will go free, unpunished. How is that just? How is that fair? A murderer can be forgiven? The Boca, the Boca guys that we paid for, I always want to say Boca Raton, but I'm sorry. Those people that we pray for all the time, they can go free? How is that fair? Isn't God being unrighteous? Isn't God doing what is wrong if he justifies those who, Romans 4, 4, who are ungodly? God, do you really want the guilty to go free? And the answer was God is not being unjust or in justification or, or in justifying the guilty. Because that's the gospel. Because through faith, again, Romans 4, 4, we, the guilty, the ungodly, are, account, are counted as upholding the law, credited as being right and just. And that, again, is specific revelation about God. If you like, that who, that's who God is. That is God being God. God justifies the ungodly. And you see, among other things, that's why Christians ought to be the most forgiving people on the planet. But there's more. Chapter 6, Paul also deals with this. Okay, is God being unrighteous question, but he uses our unrighteousness as his talking point. And you can see this in chapter 6. We alluded to it a moment ago. Does free grace encourage us to be unrighteous? All right, so God, if you keep telling Christians that they are forgiven, and you keep telling them grace, 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 then that's just going to want to make them sin, sin, sin. And of course, you see the answer there. Paul says, by no means. And then explains why God is righteous in, in saying where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, because that is who God is. That is God being God. Now, you see, when you think about that, we're, sometimes we're so legalistic because we think about righteousness, but we have our short list of righteousness. That's legalism. And we don't have the full list in mind. We have the short list. That won't work. And so as... As you're listening, do you see how otherworldly the wisdom of God is in the gospel? I mean, there's nothing like it on the planet. And so if that is true, then when you think about election, why should it be any different? God chose whom he would save before time and space and anything, and he, his choice preceded any consideration of a person's faith. Now you hear that, and let's be honest, you're like, what? Election is probably the most controversial part in Romans, if not in the entire Bible. So you're like, glad you're here. <laughs> glad I'm doing this. Now, there's three things we need to note 
in verses 14 and following before we go to our second point. First, and you're going to have to look at your Bibles. Look how Paul keeps taking us back to the Old Testament to teach the doctrine of election in the New Testament. Over 10 times in this little section, 10 Old Testament scriptures are underpinning the doctrine of election in this chapter. And if you think about it, isn't that great? He keeps quoting God's word from the Old Testament to establish election's truth in the New Testament. That is the immutability of God. That is the unchanging nature of God. There's not one kind of God in the Old Testament and a new kind of God in the New. It's the same God. By the way, again, he did the same thing back in chapters 3 and 4 when Paul was explaining justification by faith alone to say justification by faith is not a new thing. That's what he was saying. It's like, this is not new. It's been around since Genesis. Read your Bibles. And he's doing the exact same thing here. Second, there's a lot of different ways we could approach the teaching of the doctrine of election. So one way to approach it is historically. And we could compare the two views in Christian history. And usually the two views are Calvinism and Arminianism. But there's more. There's Augustine and Pelagius. There's Luther and Erasmus. There's Whitfield and Wesley. There's the Green Bay Packers and the Minnesota Vikings. Sorry, I just threw that in there. See, you didn't laugh. And I didn't think you would. But anyway, because <laughs> it's so serious. But I laughed. So that's good enough. So we could approach it historically, but that's not actually good enough. We could approach it systematically. And what we could do is we could start from the beginning of the Bible and we could trace the line of election from Noah and Abraham and Jacob and David and Jesus because there are lots of other places where the Bible speaks about election. Or we could approach it apologetically, right? And we could go on the defense and say, okay, we're going to pick this side. And so if God chooses those who will be saved, then how does that make God look, and, and then we defend God, all right? Here's another joke, so bear with me. You know, don't be talking about my mama, right? Don't talk about my God that way. But we're not going to use any of those approaches. What we're going to do is we're going to stay with the exegetical approach. And by the way, exegesis means simply out of the text. Out of the text. Because if we don't, we're going to miss so much of the content in Romans 9, which does not then make election seem so cold and so cruel, but it does make God more awesome. Now think with me. When we walk through Romans chapter 8, and we got to foreknowledge and predestination, if you just jump in that, and forget about all the love of God that is just flowing through the text, no condemnation, no charge, all that stuff, because of Jesus... And so the whole thing is just rooted in love. If you don't get that, then no wonder people leave that predestination and foreknowledge angrily. It's the exact same thing here. What do you look at in verses 1 through 5? Do you see it there in Romans 9? What do you see? Paul is telling us how much he loves his Jewish brothers and sisters. And so before he gets to his election talk, he says to them, I wish I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. And therefore, in chapters 9 and 10, 11 and 15, we have a Paul who believes in election, but prays for the salvation of his own people. Paul, whose whole goal in life, Romans 15, is to preach the gospel where it has not been preached to all people. And he daily dies for the gospel, even though he believes in election. So, what I want you to see is that when we approach 
election exegetically out of the text, it gives us a much further explanation and takes away, you know, the axe to grind, team to support, pick a side to see if we can stay friends mentality, which is so often part and parcel of the Christian church when you preach election. Thirdly, and obviously, again, please look at verse 14. Verse 14 would not be there if the doctrine of election wasn't so difficult for human beings to understand, to get a hold of. Because as we said, on the surface, admittedly, God sounds unjust and God sounds unfair. And human responsibility and salvation, that sounds unneeded. And free will out the door. So if election wasn't a real part of God's plan, you need to ask yourself this question. Why is verse 14 there? Why is it there? And this is what you need to know. And this is why you need to pray for me. When election is preached biblically, then the the verse 14 question, it's going to be asked. It will be asked. It's again, it's the same thing in chapter 6. Paul says grace. And the person responds in chapter 6, Paul, if grace is so big, then, then can I just go on sinning? And Paul says, no. And here's the point. If no one asked Paul that question about grace, it might have meant that Paul wasn't explaining fully how big and how subversive to the merely human mind the grace of God is. That how much grace we actually need. The question would have never been asked. But it was asked. It's the exact same thing here. If no one says, hold up, how is that fair? Then maybe we don't understand how big and how sovereign and how righteous God is. Maybe it wasn't preached the way that it should be preached. Maybe we need the righteousness of God explained to us more fully. And that's what Paul does. Now, one last thing before we get to the second point. And I say this with tears. Literally, I was crying when I wrote this. When you think about God and who he is, as he explained from the Bible, aren't you tired of doubting God in his word? Aren't you tired of trusting in your own wisdom and your own strength and in your own righteousness and trying to live life out in that and not simply just resting and trusting in the goodness and grace of God? I mean, I am. My wife said one sentence this week in a conversation. And that one sentence, just I just crumbled. I didn't tell her till later on. But it made me so afraid. It wasn't something mean that she said. She just said something. And as I grow older, it's just one more thing I don't like about myself. And frankly, my distrust of God wears me out. And it hurts. And it needs to stop. And one day it will. But for now, the grace of God tells me I am covered. I am covered. Loved ones, whenever you are preaching the gospel correctly, there will be controversies and there will be questions. It is inevitable. It is inevitable. That's our big introduction. Second point, the big question. Do you see it there? Is God unjust? That's the question. Answer, not at all or by no means. And his answer is not, well, God chose his chosen based on what he saw about them in the future. Verse 11 and following, it puts that to rest. 
And also, we find nothing here about free will at all. We only learn about God's free will in verse 22, which we'll get to next time. Nevertheless, Paul's response, it, it is very simple and it is very orderly. This is what he does. And, and look at your Bibles to make sure I'm telling you the truth. He quotes from the Old Testament. And then he summarizes his quotes. He quotes again from the Old Testament. And again, he summarizes it. And here is what he's saying. Because it's all Bible. God is not unjust in election because election displays the character of God. That's verse 15 and following. And election serves the purpose of God. That's around verse 17 or verse 16, okay? Election is not unjust because God in election displays his character and he displays his purpose. Okay, that's our task then. First, election displays the character of God. Verse 15, do you see it there? Where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So this is from Exodus 33. And maybe you want to turn there because we're going to be back and forth. But nevertheless, in Exodus 33, that's where this quote comes from. And what happens is this. If you look at chapter 32 of Exodus, uh, that's the whole golden calf episode. And in that, the, the people of God had messed up big time. And God punishes, now listen to me please, he punishes some of them. What he does is he has the Levites come in and actually kill many of their brothers. Not all of them, but some of them. 3,000, says the Bible. Moses, like a good pastor, immediately makes intercession for those who remain alive. Oh God, forgive their sins. Blot, don't, don't, don't blot them out of the book. Listen to what he says. Blot me out of the book. In other words, punish me. Not them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the Apostle Paul? Oh God, I wish that all my brothers and sisters could be saved. If it was possible for me to be dumped, dump me for them. Moses, a type of Christ. Paul, a type of Christ. And what happens is, is that God does forgive his people. Then chapter 30 says, 33 says, God says, okay, it's time to leave Sinai. I promise you a land. I'm going to give it to you, but I'm not going to go with you on that journey. I'll just send an angel. That's verse 2 of, of chapter 33. Listen to what it says. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. And I might destroy you on the way. All right, so God says, I won't go with you. I'm going to send an angel. The angel will help you. The angel will take care of you because you're so stiff-necked and you're so rebellious. I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> Verse 4 says that when the people heard that terrible word, they mourned because they wanted God to go with them. So they said, you know, no, angel, God, that's not good enough. We want you. You've been with us, and now you're not coming. Please come. And that's why in verse 7 of chapter 33 of Exodus, we learn about this tent of meeting. And that's important. So it's not like wasted time. Paul, or excuse me, Moses tells them in verse 7 that that's where he met God face to face like a man speaking to his friend. And so Moses puts that there to remind the reader that this is what we had going for us. God would come and speak to Moses face to face as a friend. I mean, one reason, because Moses did not know everything about God immediately. This is the redemptive history. He was learning about God. 
as God would display who God was. And so, in the tent of meeting, Moses asked God, because he knows God better, could you just rethink that whole angel thing? And Moses says, God, I need you to go with us. We need you, God. Will you please reconsider? Will you come with us and just not an angel? And God replies in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses asks again, if your presence will not go with us, don't bring us out of here. And the Lord says again, verse 17. Now, that's interesting that he doubles down on the question because he doesn't know God fully. But he wants to know God fully. So he comes up with the same question and and God, same answer. I will do the very thing that you've spoken, like a good parent, right? Patient with the kids who don't know it all, who think they do. But anyway, (laughs) you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. In other words, the Lord says, okay, Moses, you've interceded for the people. I'm going to go with you. I'll be with you. And then Moses asked a third question. Now bear with me. Verse 18 Show me your glory. In other words, God, show me who you are. Now, after this, beginning in chapter 35 and all the way to the end of the book, God gives Moses minute instructions about the tabernacle where God would meet his people and God would dwell. And so the good news of Exodus is, yes, God's going to go with his people. He's going to go with you. He's going to give you instructions minutely, specifically about his, his home The tabernacle as he goes along with you. Now, back to verse 18 of chapter 3. Moses says to God, okay, show me your glory. And and listen to what God says. Okay, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Okay, what is God's goodness? What is God's glory? In other words, what is God like? And this is what he says. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can, may see me and live. All right, so think with me. Moses says, show me your glory. Okay, Who, what are you like, God? And so how does God show Moses his glory? Because he can't go eyeball to eyeball with God. So how does God show Moses his glory? By speaking. He can't see God as he is, but says, I will make all my goodness pass in front of you by speaking to you. And what does he say? I will proclaim my name. Okay? This is who I am. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And loved ones, that is a summary of God's self-disclosure to Moses, our immutable, immutable God's self-disclosure. This is God. This is who God is. So think of what it means. Moses, again, I want to see your glory. What do you like, God? And the the Lord, in order to reveal his glory, says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. This is what I am like. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So part of God's sovereignty, according to God, is to show mercy on whom he will have mercy on. So that's not just, you know, the, the invention of a denomination. And it's not a minor thing. It's a vital piece of describing and defining what it means for God to be God. So again, when Moses said, let me see your glory, God determined, I am going to say this to him to show my glory and speak of my righteous freedom. Now think, God could have said a million other things about himself. I made this. I can do that. 
But what does he say? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's God's freedom. God's freedom to bestow mercy to whoever he pleases and still not be unjust apart from any constraint of his own will, which is the essence of what it means to be God. I mean, that is the glory of God. God is merciful. God is sovereign. If you begin with God and not ourselves, then election is not unjust. Therefore, election displays, I think, in brilliant colors, the glory of God being God. It's a mercy that God saves anyone. And ultimately, he is sovereign in his compassion. Both the mercy of election and the sovereignty of election teaches us something essential about God. Namely, God is gracious. And his grace is absolutely free grace. So then, in Romans 9.14, it's no surprise why Paul quotes from Exodus to answer that question. Okay, is God, is God unjust? By no means. Is God unfair in election? No way. In fact, this revelation of God, this specific revelation of God, something we would not know about God unless God told us, it displays his righteousness and it displays his glory. That, if you would, that is a fuller definition of what it means for God to be righteous. So when you think about the righteousness of God, election is a more fuller definition of what that means. Election is part and parcel of what makes God righteous. And that's why, again, look at your Bible back in chapter 9. That's why he summarizes in verse 16. And remember we said the question comes in 14. Verse 15, an Old Testament scripture is given. So he draws from the Bible. He's not driving out of the air. He draws from the Bible. And his summary, his, his exegesis out of the text is verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort but on God's mercy. So, okay, think with me. We learn in chapter 8, the, the gospel has to go forth. God's word is clear. And yes, we have to pray for conversions. And yes, people need to decide for Christ. They need to believe and they need to choose. They must repent. But that is not the decisive factor. I don't know if you noticed when Clayton was reading the scripture at the very end there, when God calls you to be holy, and then what does it say at the end? And he will do it. See the tension of that? God calls you to be holy, you rascals. But he will do it. Gospel's got to go out. Pray, pray, pray. Work hard. I was reading this week about David Brennard. He was a missionary to the Indians in the, in the 18th century. He was, a, he was an election guy, and he went all out. He gave his life for the sake of the gospel. Okay. But those things are not the decisive reason for some, some people exercising saving faith and others not. It's not ultimately our will. It is God's mercy. So you take the truth, true truth of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and let them sing a song together. Together about our God. Here's the song I came up with. All flesh is like grass. <laughs> and grass withers and fades away. The glory of men and women like the flowers. That the sun just shrivels and they fall. But the word of the Lord is forever. Romans 9.14, Romans 9.15, Romans 9.16 and so on. That is the word of God. And so there are other factors to be sure. But the ultimate reason says verse 16 says God is God. 
It comes to us through faith, and faith itself is a gift due to God's purpose and election. It all begins with God. And so Paul says, just, or, uh, election is just. Because in election, God displays his merciful and sovereign character. Here God shows us what he is like. And loved ones, there's nothing better than God showing us what he's like. Nothing better. Election displays the character of God. And secondly, and this will be a much briefer, election serves the purpose of God. And again, verse 17, do you see it? This is the flip side of what we just learned. Okay, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he also hardens who he hardens. So think of it like this. In verses 15 and 16, God demonstrates his righteousness in loving Jacob. That's the previous verses. And now in verses 17 to 18, God demonstrates how he's still righteous in hating Esau. Okay, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so the, what this is, is like, okay, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was Pharaoh's heart already hardened and God just like add to it? Or did God do that? Well, this is what you need to know. Six times in Exodus, we read, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three times in Exodus, we read, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Seven times in Exodus, we read, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So the Bible says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Okay, what does that mean? Three observations, all from the Bible. First, no matter the hardening, Pharaoh is still responsible for his behavior. He's still an active agent and, and, and deserving punishment because he was wicked. So he didn't go, God, please stop all this. I'm really sorry. Please have mercy on me. That didn't happen. He did not ask God for mercy. Just like we will never hear when people say to God, God, I want to be saved. You'll never hear God saying, well, you're not on the list. Go away. That will never happen. That's not how it works. If a person comes to God in sincerity, repenting, saying, Jesus, you're my only hope. I know that. Have mercy on me. He will save you. So, first thing, Pharaoh was responsible. Second observation, it would be too big of a stretch to say God hardened Pharaoh's heart after responding to Pharaoh's own hardening. Because God was not responding to Pharaoh's heart as we find God hardening Pharaoh's heart first. Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, for example. God begins by saying, I harden Pharaoh's heart. Third observation. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was according to God's word. So before Moses and Pharaoh ever got together, this is what Exodus chapter 7, 3. This is a conversation between God and Moses. God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. Again, everything begins with God. Here's the point. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was a response to what God himself declared. God was first. And what's interesting, as you look at Romans 9, verse 17, 
Paul pulls from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. And that verse at all, it doesn't mention anything about the hardening. Rather, what does he say? He says, election serves the purpose of God. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, you understand that? That is the name and fame of God. So there are many other ways that God could have dealt with Pharaoh. This wasn't about power. You know, our God is stronger than your God. But this was about proclamation. God raised Pharaoh to proclaim his name to the entire world. So that my name, that's what the Bible says. So that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, again, verse 18. Do you see it there? God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And God hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, we need to end. You know what the next question is. You see there in verse 22, but we'll save that, Lord willing, for next time. Okay, this is it, okay? How is then God not unjust in election? Okay, that was the question in verse 14. Here's the application. First, Paul doesn't measure God's justice against a human standard and sense of fairness. Okay? Remember we said a few weeks ago, if you say something like, well, my God would not do that, you're becoming a philosopher. (laughs) You want to be a theologian first, not a philosopher. Okay? Paul does not measure God's justice against a human standard or a human sense of fairness. But what he does do is he measures God's justice against two things. Number one, God's word, and therefore God himself. That's why he quotes from the Old Testament. So the the quotes from the Old Testament is as if to say, election has always been true about God. From the very get-go, this is the God who is God. And secondly, in choosing some for mercy and, and hardening others, God is being fundamentally consistent with who he is, his character, his purpose. In other words, if you open your Bible and start in Genesis, it's the same God doing the same thing. In many different ways, God is being God. The mercy of God and the severity of God, they are biblical truths. And they describe God as God. Okay, so the point is, God will do what is right. Okay, and so what is the highest right? This is from your Bible. Psalm 138.2. I have exalted... Above all things, my name and my word. If you would like to know about my name, there's only one place you can go. My word. My word. God is not unjust in election. Because election displays the character of God. That's what God said. And election serves the purpose of God. That's what God said. So what I want to say to you in deep humility, loved ones, behold your God. The whole world is a a theater for God to display his glory and his purpose. This is our God.
So early this morning, I was watching YouTube. And I remember the movie Joe versus the Volcano. Do you remember that movie? It's a personal favorite of mine. And one of my favorite scenes is he's stranded in the ocean. He's got his really cool luggage that actually floats on the water all tied together. And he's about dead. And it's at night. And he's at his last wits. If you would, he's at the end of himself. Finally. It's a full moon. He's struggling to get up. And he says in part, dear God, thank you for my life. I forgot how big you are. Let's baptize that. Dear God, thank you for my, your mercy and my conversion. I forgot how big you are. Let's pray. And if those gentlemen will be coming to serve communion, if you guys would come forward, please. Father, we are unworthy of your mercy and unworthy of Christ. And yet, God, we have great worth in Christ because of your mercy. Help us to understand this as we continue on in Romans 9. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.